As you're finding your seats, make sure you find your Bible, either the paper variety or the electronic one. So either open it up to Genesis 43 or push and swipe to Genesis chapter 43. And a study that I've entitled Facing Famine and Fueling Faith. You know, very often, and I was actually pondering this kind of this week as you know, it's been one of those weeks to where you kind of wonder, you know, Lord, what are you going to do with this time in, in life? It is very often when we're going through times where we're without, when we're struggling, when, when something difficult comes into our lives, when a situation that is overwhelming comes, very often the Lord is actually trying to fuel the faith in our lives. Because it's when we are without, it's when we can't accomplish uh, the, the end that we see is necessary with our own selves, our own resources, our own abilities, with our own strength. When we get to those places to where we are hungry, we're, we're starving in that sense. You, you could use the term bankrupt or, or perhaps dying of thirst, all of them apply when you get to that place to where you're facing famine, it, it very often is there that God fuels our faith. He, he's putting a few extra logs in the fire that's going to eventually burn within us that causes us to really walk closer with him. That is very visible in this passage tonight in chapter 43. But we ourselves have a little bit of a part in how God is able to use these situations in our lives. We have to submit uh, to the tests that come in those famines, those difficult times. We have to be willing to listen. We have to be willing to learn. We've got to be in a place where God can speak into our lives uh, a new step of faith or maybe a new life of faith for some of you. Sometimes I bump into Christians that have made it a fairly long way in their walk with the Lord, and they've really never had their faith tested. Some people go through fairly easy journeys initially in their walk with the Lord, and and maybe you have not reached that place to where God's allowed something that really tests you. And so I pray tonight we'll see yet another beautiful picture of Jesus in, in the life of Joseph here. Um, But would you pray with me, and we'll pick up in verse 1 here in Genesis 43. Father, again, we are so grateful, Lord, for the things that you allow in our lives that fuel our faith. And famine can certainly do that. Thirst can do that. Hunger uh, is one of those things that just drives us to the place that we, we know we need to get something that we don't have. And so, God, we we pray that that would be our faith tonight, that our faith would grow. And so we pray that you'd use your word to speak to us as your children. We we just put down the things that we've brought with us tonight, the things that are occupying our mind, our hearts, Lord, our actions and activities. And we, we just ask, God, that you would speak by your spirit into the hearts of your children. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1 here in Genesis 43, and this is continuing the the drama in Egypt uh, with what will become the children of Israel, the children of Jacob, and we're going to see his name go back to Israel tonight in our passage. It was just 
uh, Jacob in chapter 42, but the children of Jacob, the children of Israel. And now the famine was severe in the land, and it came to pass that when they had eaten up the grain which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, go back and buy us a little food. I want you to notice something here, uh, and we'll get to it in a moment, but very often um, we have a tendency to over-exaggerate situations in our lives a little bit when we're dealing with other people. Um, Sometimes we make a little more out of them because they're obviously not totally in famine because they've saved up a whole bunch of things uh, they're they're, going to use as a gift, but they're mostly the delicacies. And so somebody kind of had a a pretty good look on this famine and they had actually prepared for it. But Judah spoke to him saying, the man solemnly warned us, that man obviously is Joseph back in Egypt, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. In other words, there's there's a condition that's been placed on their release as they're going to go back to Canaan, they're going to take this grain, they've had the money that's in their sacks, and they're now going to go back, and they, they've now eaten up all of this grain that they previously purchased. If you'll send our brother with us, we'll go down and buy food to eat for you. And, and so they're kind of starting to manipulate, just like their father has always manipulated, and it's like, we're not going unless you, you know, send Benjamin with us. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And then Israel. So same guy. This is Jacob. And again, I think there's two things in view here. One is he's starting to get the message. He's heading towards the right place. Because remember, Jacob, heel catcher, Israel, governed by God. So he's going from being a deceiver to doing what God wants to do. He's not quite all the way there yet, but he's on that journey. And that very often is a place where our faith has to be tested. Because if you continue to try and rely on your flesh while trying to be governed by God, you're going to find out that you're going to constantly be in conflict. The child of God cannot continue in sin any longer. Paul writes that to the the Roman church. And, and, And so just as this is in the Old Testament, so it is in the New, the child of God has to walk by faith. That in fact, the writer of the book of Hebrews said that without faith, it's actually impossible to please God. That our lives are lives of faith. We, we walk by faith. We don't walk by sight. And, and so if we walk by sight, we end up deceiving ourselves or becoming self-sufficient. And so we see this in the life of the children of Jacob, Israel, in this passage. And it is a picture of our own lives in Christ. And Israel said, why did you deal so wrongfully with me as to tell the man whether you still had another brother? He says, what were you doing, divulging the, the family secrets? Now, I want you to notice something here. This is a pretty selfish place to be. It's like the whole family starving. It's not like there's only one brother, but this is the favorite son. This is the remaining son born to Rachel. As far as Jacob or Israel is concerned, he's got two sons. One of them's already dead. He has no idea that Joseph is actually still alive. And so now you have Benjamin. It's like, okay, well, I'm not risking him too. In other words, it's kind of all about him. But they said, the man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family, saying, is your father still alive? Have you another brother? And we told him, according to these words, could we have possibly known that he would say, bring your brother down? And then Judah said to Israel, his father, 
send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. He's, like, he's kind of saying, look, we need to look at this from a different perspective. You, you may want to keep the, the, the remaining son born to Rachel alive, but what about the rest of us? When we're walking in the flesh, we can become so narrow of focus that we actually can't see the whole situation. We don't actually see it the way God sees it. We, we simply see it from our own little narrow view, and we get very tunnel-visioned or, or myopic. We only see a very small picture of it, and you can see that here in the life of Jacob or Israel. He says, look, we're all going to die. It's not, you know, you don't need to just simply worry about one of your kids. How about all of your kids? And I myself will be surety, and that, that means a bond, or it means I, I will guarantee, in essence, a safety. Uh, I will be surety for him. And from my hand you shall require him. And if I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. And so this drama continues. And and you can kind of see what God is, I I believe, it's pretty visible. And and there's a a picture here in this, and it's in Judah. Remember that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And who is our surety that we're going to get to heaven? the lion of the tribe of Judah, that when we rest in the hands of the one who's the remainder of the tribe of Judah, Jesus, that is there that we're safe. And so it's a picture of Christ. And verse 10 says, notice this, for if we had not lingered, surely by now we would have returned this second time. And so you can kind of see first this danger of procrastinating when you know what to do when God's already spoken. And in this particular case, these brothers, when they left Egypt, it was absolutely clear to them what they needed to do if they wanted any more grain. They were going to have to bring Benjamin back. There, There was no chance that Joseph was going to be satisfied with anything else They had to bring the younger brother back. But this whole time, they've been trying to figure out a way to not do what has been given to them as a task to do. And this is where it kind of plays into our lives in Christ. Very often, we can read what the Word says. We can get instruction from God in that sense. And you can kind of just substitute a little bit here with me if you would allow me the the privilege to kind of take and turn this now into a typology. If you look at Joseph as a type of Christ, Christ has spoken. He's given him a task. He said, this is what I need you to do. This is what I want you to be obedient to. I want you to go and I want you to come back. And they're like, well, we're going to go. But this whole coming back thing, eh, I'm not so sure about that. It's kind of that halfway principle that we've looked at a couple of times here in the book of Genesis. We need to go all the way to where God has spoken that we should go. In other words, we need to be fully obedient. And they were trying to figure out an easier way. Well, maybe we could send somebody back with word that he's here, but maybe take a little extra money. We don't know exactly what they might have been thinking, but we know that they were not being completely obedient because we find it here, for if we had not lingered, they would have already been back there a second time. This would have been over and done. Can I tell you the spiritual truth in this is this. When God gives you something to do, do it. Don't linger. Don't try and figure out some other way. When God has spoken, if it's a sin issue, drop the sin. 
If it's an attitude issue, change the attitude. If it's an action God wants you to take, do it. If it's an instruction from heaven, it's not a negotiable thing. It's not something where we kind of barter with God and hang around and see if he'll change his mind. When God speaks, God intends us to listen and then do. We're supposed to be doers of the word, amen? Part of the problem in this story is these guys kind of keep dancing around being obedient. But dancing around being obedient is also being partially disobedient, isn't it? You know, so you, you can kind of see how we can kind of do what the world does, which is we can look at this from both sides. We can say, well, I was being partially obedient, and we can almost be satisfied with that. Remember what Jesus said? He said, they are my disciples indeed if they keep my commandments. And so the Lord wants us to be the type of people that when we are given something by God, that we actually follow through and do what God wants us to do. And God actually is trying to fuel their faith. He's trying to get them to to trust. He's trying to get them to be obedient. He's speaking into their life, and he puts them in the situation, I believe, specifically for that reason. He's saying, look, I, I want to do a work in your life, but I want you to get engaged in the process. And so when I tell you to do something, don't procrastinate. Don't wander around and try and figure out some other way. Just simply be obedient. One of the things that we see in this passage, men, as husbands, as fathers, and I want to speak to you very specifically, we have a responsibility to lead our families in following Christ. Partial obedience is also partial disobedience. And when we do not teach our children to follow hard after God, but to kind of dance around and see if you can get sort of close, but not quite all the way there, we are teaching them to live lives that lack faith. We're teaching them to have another, you know, kind of a a little bit of an out, a little bit of a plan if this whole Jesus thing doesn't work out. And, and I want to tell you, give you a couple of areas where I think we have to be really careful. One of those is in our lifestyle choices, the things that we allow in our homes, the movies we watch and the things that we undertake in our home. Things that might be, as far as you're concerned, a negotiable issue with the Lord. When you show your children that you are unwilling to go all the way to God's position on something and you stop short of that, you're telling your children that it's okay to mess with that issue in their own life. And whether you can resist that temptation fully or not is not the issue. The issue is, what are you teaching your kids? These kids have learned to be faithless because their father was faithless. They've learned to not walk closely with God because their father continually kind of turned away from the Lord and went back to his old ways. And so I caution us as parents, and now I turn my attention to you ladies as well, because the same principle applies uh, to, to you ladies as we raise our children together. We have to be people of faith if we expect to raise up another generation of people of faith. If we are people of flesh, we will raise up a generation of people of flesh. We will teach our children to not trust God and we will teach them is this, that they can simply make their own way and not consider the Lord 
just do whatever you want to do and God will fix it. And I want to tell you, God does not always fix every mess we make. Sometimes we go through very disastrous situations that can affect our entire lives because we have chosen to not follow hard after the Lord. Follow after the Lord and let these things fuel your faith. When something comes, live in righteousness, not in unrighteousness. And you can kind of see this in the life of Joseph. He, he says in verse 6, why, why, why is this trouble upon me? Why did you bring this trouble to me? Well, they didn't bring the trouble to him. He taught them how to be in trouble. They're the, they learned this from him. They learned how to be deceptive. They learned how to, to not walk with God. They, they learned these principles of not telling the truth from their father Jacob. So the truth is he actually brought this on himself. But he doesn't want to take responsibility for it. I think Judah's being wise here. He kind of sidesteps this whole issue. And this offer that he makes is kind of shows me that there's some of the, the boys are starting to get it. They're starting to realize, you know, hey, maybe dad's not exactly leading us the right direction here. Notice the second thing, and that's the serious struggles that can be caused by unbelief. Their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. In other words, he's just kind of caving into it. He's not really for it. And remember, this is an issue of obedience. Take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessel and carry down a present for the man. In other words, he's still trying to kind of cajole his way through it. You can see that this is not a wholehearted obedience here. It's not like the Jacob that we saw at Bethel that's like, I'm going to claim the promises of God. This is somebody who's kind of sort of, well, you know, maybe it won't kill me, so I'll kind of dabble in it a little bit. So take a present, a little balm, a little honey, some spices and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Sounds like he's, you know, going to make a nice little fruit basket for him. So I hear, well, look what we brought you. You know, can, can you change your mind about this whole situation? And now notice this. This is outright bribery, isn't it? Take money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. He says, look, we don't want any trouble, so let's try and buy our way out of it. When God's trying to teach you a lesson, you don't have enough money. You'll never have enough money. You won't have enough gifts. You will not be able to buy your way out because God is going to leave you in sufficient situations that you learn a lesson. Why? Because he loves you. He's going to allow you to go through that time of testing and trial and trouble, tribulation, the stuff, because you're not trusting. You're not believing God for what he said he would do. And this is an evidence of unbelief in the life of Jacob, or now as he's being called Israel, finally, again. And so he's, he's, he's saying, look, maybe it was an oversight. Maybe there's no real lesson in here. This is all just a mistake. This is how our brain begins to process negative things that God wants to use in our life. Well, maybe it's just circumstance. 
you know, maybe it was just a bad day in Egypt. Maybe it wasn't really a problem on my part. Maybe it was just all a misunderstanding. And as you look at this passage, you can clearly see that God's trying to say, look, no, I'm trying to do something in your life, and you keep trying to escape it. You keep trying to buy your way out of it. You keep trying to do something else other than be obedient. And in this case, they're trying to buy their way out of it. I've watched time after time after time where God works in the life of a believer in the same way he worked in the life of Pharaoh. He begins with flies, and you're going like this, trying to get rid of the flies. And then come the frogs, and then the river turned to blood, and you end up going all the way to where you need the angel of death to come over your house before you'll actually listen to the Lord and flee what he's telling you to flee. God's actually trying to do you a favor by limiting the damage, by allowing you to make a decision when the consequences of that decision are still small. In the life of Pharaoh, what would have happened had Pharaoh relented when it was just flies? It would have been over, right? Or the frogs would have been over, right? River turns to blood would have been over. And on and on and on, all the way through the ten plagues until you get to the, the angel of death is now about the encampment. God works in increments of severity. And you see this throughout the Old Testament. It even carries over into the New he would like to whisper in our ears, look, I'm trying to get your faith fueled here, and so I'm going to let this little thing in your life, why don't you change your direction while it's a little thing? And so now instead of listening, they've brought this catastrophe on them to where they're going to have to go back, and, and God's going to have to do this the hard way. You do not want God to have to work in your life the hard way. When he offers you an easy way, my counsel to you, take it when when it's still a little thing deal with it then but you can see they haven't really learned that lesson yet now notice they know who to turn to verse 14 and and may god almighty and he uses here in the hebrew language el shaddai the name of god the almighty one the sovereign king of heaven He's saying, may God Almighty give you mercy before the man, that he may release your other brother and Benjamin. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. And so the men took that present and Benjamin, and they took double the money in their hand, and they arose and went down to Egypt, and they stood before Joseph. And so now they're back in, in Joseph's court. And you can, you can kind of see Jacob, Israel, having a little bit of a pity party here. And I was like, oh, I'm in despair, I'm in grief. This is, you know, how can this be happening to me? If he actually stopped for about 30 seconds to think about it, the reason it's happening is him. He's the reason it's going on. He, he hasn't been listening this whole time. He continues to try and do the exact same thing in a little bit different situation. It's like, well, we'll try and buy him out. We'll, we'll try and bribe him. We'll try and give him something. I, I just want what I want, and I want it now. It's a dangerous place for us to get as, a, as the children of God. When, when we try and, in essence, curry God's favor by offering him things, and this is the way it works very often. 
well, Lord, if you'll, you'll just get me out of this, this trouble, I got this ticket, it's a DUI, if you, then, you know, I'm going to stop drinking for a week. And then the next time comes, and Lord, if you just get me out this time, then I'm going to quit for a whole month. You know, I promise to never do drugs again as long as I don't actually get too much of a jail. Could you have my sentence commuted to a lesser crime? You know, we, we try and make deals with God rather than change the actual behavior. We'll say, and if, well, I'll do something for you if you just get me out. I'll give you something if you just release me from the consequences this one time. You can see that it's actually not a heart check. It's not something that's going to change behavior. He just doesn't want to suffer the consequences of the sin. And that is the difference between someone who is simply sorry they sinned and someone who is genuinely repentant. Because most people are sorry when they sin if there's a penalty from the sin. Amen? Most people very readily don't like negative consequences in their life. And so they begin to barter with God. It's like, well, you know, I'll I'll give it up because it was really painful this time. But then they go right back to it because it it wasn't an offering of the heart to God for God to change the attitudes that got you to those actions. It's someone saying, well, I don't like what's happening to me right now. So if there's a way to get out of it, don't change my heart. Don't change what's going to happen next. Just get me out of the circumstance. That is not repentance. That is just simply sorrow. It it can have nothing to do with God. You can just be upset that you got in trouble. And so now you just tell, you make, in essence, try and make a, 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 a plea with God to get you out of the circumstance. And that's what's happening here. It's manipulating, in essence, God. So Jacob isn't acting like, you know, God is the the. the El Shaddai, he's acting like he wants to try and control what God does with his life. And God's always going to be in charge, whether we see it or not. The second thing we see here, the third thing really, is this transition now to trusting the Lord. And we see that in the remaining portion of this chapter. Pick up verse 16. And you're going to see three basic things in, in this remaining set of verses. And when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of the house, take these men to my home and slaughter an animal and make ready for these men. They will dine with me at noon. And then the man did as Joseph ordered and the man brought the men into Joseph's house. And now the men were afraid and they were brought into Joseph's house and they said, It's because of the money which was returned in our sacks the first time that we were brought in so that he may make a case against us and seize us and take us as slaves with our donkeys. You see, when you are deceptive, when you don't tell the truth, when you will not repent, you wander around in a constant state of fear that you will get caught. When there has been no heart change, you're always worried about when you're going to get found out. And so these guys, because their heart is not right, are not seeing the situation for what it is. They begin to transfer their own guilt into other people's lives to where they now are suspect 
of every good thing that happens to them because they know that they're not right with the Lord. You can't even enjoy the good things that God does. Sin will taint everything in your life to where you do not enjoy what God's trying to do. God's actually in the process of getting ready to bless them. But they don't see it. They don't get it. They don't understand it. They can't believe it because they know they haven't been completely forthright and honest. They haven't given up. They haven't said, look, we messed up. We sold our brother into slavery. They still have not come clean about this whole story. And so they think ill of other people. And when they drew near the steward of Joseph's house, they talked with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, sir, we indeed came down the first time to buy food. But it happened when we came to the encampment that we opened our sacks and there was each man's money and it was in the mouth of his sack and our money in full weight. And so we brought it back in our hand. And we brought down other money in our hands to buy food. And we do not know who put the money in our sacks. And he said, Peace be with you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. And then you brought Simeon out to them. You see, when you live a life of deception, when you're not open and honest with God, you're always looking for the negative. You're always looking for what goes around to come around, right? And so what happens ultimately is when these things come, you're thinking the worst. It develops in us a negative view of virtually everything. I think one of the key reasons that Christians have a negative attitude is because they are dealing with things in their life in an ineffective way. They've not yet fully surrendered. And so the same thing that they know should happen to them is the thing that they expect from other people. They wander around in this constant state of, it's going to catch up with me sooner or later. And so they're skeptical, they're cynical, they're critical, and very often they will not believe that God actually wants to bless them. And so their God becomes someone that they fear. And they wander around in fear, waiting for the hammer to drop. Now, that's you tonight. If you're here tonight, and you've got things in your life that you've not fully come clean to God with, come clean to God. He wants to heal that divide. He wants to cure that situation in your life. He wants to bless you, but he is not going to bless you until you come clean. Until you say, look, I I surrender. I want to walk in faith. I don't want to live like this anymore. And so you see in this picture three basic things that happen here. First, they try and explain to the officials why they had the money in the first place. Now, notice what is said after. We have the benefit of knowing what the steward actually says. So we know the steward actually didn't need an explanation. Amen? Amen? He wasn't looking for an explanation. It it, it must have been kind of strange to him for them to make up this story about what was going on when 
well, we gave you the money. God took care of that for you. You were okay when you left here. The whole time that they've been gone, they've actually been living as if they're going to get caught for something they were never in trouble with in the first place. They actually weren't in trouble in Egypt. As far as Joseph was concerned and the steward was concerned, they were fine. But they lived in fear. And they acted in fear. And they did not walk in faith. You notice that this whole family is now kind of caught up in this story again. The second thing we see is Simeon's release from prison. They're in the second half of verse 23. When the steward went to get Simeon, he he brings him out, and there's a time of rejoicing. You know, they've got to be grateful. Did Simeon learn anything from that confinement? Probably not. Probably not. You, you can go through a lot of stuff for the wrong reason when you're not listening to the voice of the Lord. You can put your family into situations where they're going to go through problems because you're not listening to the Lord. And you can put your kids in harm's way because you're not listening to the Lord. You can end up in all kinds of difficulties in life because you fail to listen to to the Lord in those situations. And and now Jacob's still in Canaan. He's basically on his deathbed. He doesn't really know what's going to happen going forward. And then finally we see a sovereign God step into the situation. And this is the beautiful part of this because thus far this is kind of a depressing tale, right? It's like they haven't, it's like, come on. You, in the story of Joseph, you kind of wait for that aha moment, right? It's, it's, like, it's like, when are they going to get it? When's somebody going to wake up and go, hey, I got an idea. Let's follow God. Let's actually do what we're supposed to do. Let's stop doing what we're not supposed to do. Let's do what we're supposed to do. Let's be open. Let's be honest. Because remember who this is that they serve. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Israel, this is not a foreign God to them. This isn't a foreign concept to them. They, their whole lives, have been raised believing that there's one true God. His name is El Shaddai. He's the the one who etched the stone. You know, he's going to, in the book of Exodus, Moses is going to talk to him on the mountain. It's that God. But the whole time, while they've been messing around and not doing the right thing, God is doing the right thing. And we pick up that story in verse 24. And so the man brought the men into Joseph's house. And we'll look at these couple of verses again. And, and he gave them water and washed their feet. In other words, he's being kind to them and gave their donkeys feet. I mean, this is not like, hey, we're going to arrest you. This is like, you're actually guests here. And then they made the present ready for Joseph's coming at noon, for which they heard that they would eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present, which was in their hand into the house and bowed down before him to the earth. And then he asked them about their well-being and said, Is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? 
And they answered, the servant of our father is in good health. And he is still alive. And they bowed down their heads and prostrated themselves. And then he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. And now his heart yearned for his brother, and so Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. And he went into his chamber and wept there. And then he washed his face and came out and restrained himself and said, serve the bread. And so they set him a place by himself and, and them by themselves. And the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews, for it was an abomination to the Egyptians. And so they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth, and the men looked in astonishment at one another. Now imagine this, this situation. How in the world does an Egyptian vizier know the exact birth order of all these brothers? And you, you, you can kind of see how they're starting to get the picture that there's information from outside of, of the general trains that we would think information would come from. And you can see how God's beginning to speak into their lives. There they are sitting in birth order, in other words. And he took servings to them from before him. But Benjamin's serving was five times as much as any of theirs. And so they drank and were married with him. The last thing these brothers were, expect, were expecting was to be entertained at a banquet. They were expecting they might still go back to jail. They were expecting possibly prison. They, they were really fairly harshly dealt with the first time they were there. And they were expecting that again, not because there wasn't an opportunity for good things to happen, but because they had not been honest. And so they're expecting the worst. They know their heart's unchanged, and so they're figuring they're going to be in trouble still with the Egyptians. Now, as Joseph sets these plates before them, now, just to get a picture here, that's not something that the Grand Vizier of Egypt would normally do. And, and so even, even in the way that this meal is served to them, as Joseph sets the plates before them, Joseph organizes them by their family order. As, as Joseph does these things himself, you might be thinking they're going to finally get it, but apparently they're still believing that they're, they're not being honest, so there's no reason to believe this is a good thing. This is so important for us. Because if we are going to transition to trusting the Lord, it is something we have to do wholeheartedly. We, we can't hold back from trusting the Lord. We actually have to say, Lord, I don't know what's going to happen in this, but I've been dishonest. I have not been truthful, but I'm just going to tell it like it is. And whatever happens, God, I'm going to trust you with it. 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it in your hands. I know you're a good, and, and I, I trust you. Whatever you allow, you're going to allow for a purpose that suits your, your plans for my life, and so I'm good with that. Anything short of that, and we keep ourselves in the mix, and we interject a little bit of unbelief or, or lack of faith into that situation. And so there's a few things that I, I think we can glean from this, some additional lessons And as you look at how this kind of plays out in our lives in the New Testament, we kind of get retaught these things. And the first one that I see in this passage is we need to beware uh, of of false peace and false joy. Because you can have false peace and false joy. You can create a circumstance or a set of circumstances in your life to where you ignore what God wants to do and you just take up a new career or you get involved in a new relationship or you go to that next thing, you you start some new hobby. You can experience false joy and false peace and it is very perilous. Jesus actually in in the all of that discourse as he's talking about the last days kind of gives us a a picture that nothing's really going to change in the heart of man until the Lord comes. He says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it shall be when the Son of Man returns. People were self-confident. They were carrying on their daily activities like God didn't exist. During the days of Noah, people were pretending that there were no consequences to their sin, that they could just do whatever they wanted. It was going to work out fine in the end. That's not true. And it's definitely not true eternally. To be found without Christ is is to be someone who's damned. And you don't want to be in that club. And so false joy and false peace, where you just make that peace yourself without making peace with God by surrendering, is a very dangerous thing because you begin to equate that with God's okay with my sin. Maybe even God doesn't see what you already know is sin is sin. You just keep doing what you've been doing because there's been a false peace and a false joy. In other words, anything short of humble repentance and confession is not going to bring out the kind of reconciliation that restores your relationship with the Lord. And it's not going to restore the relationship with other people either. You, you, you see, we have to we have to do exactly what God wants us to do. And there in Proverbs 14, that that principle that's in play there is there's a way that seems right to man. In other words, there's a a path and a plan that if I just put all these things together, that I'm going to end up with some circumstantial peace and some circumstantial joy. Maybe I'll just simply have more money or I'll move on from that situation. But I haven't actually allowed the Lord to change my heart, and so I move on from it. And Proverbs fourteen twelve says the end of that path is actually death. You can be so deceived as to be on that path and not even knowing that you're heading the wrong direction. That's really dangerous. It's only when we let God use the things that have happened in our life for his ends and his purposes that we actually see him the way we need to see him. And so I want to strongly encourage you there's, there's anything, if you know somebody and they've messed up, encourage them to repent of it. Don't encourage them to try and get out of the circumstances negatively that have come into their life. Because you can do that. You can get out of the circumstances and still not be okay with God. 
It is being okay with God that will make those circumstances a tool in the hand of the master for him to fuel faith in your life. A third thing that I see here, and you can see it in how the brothers respond, there's a, there's a false security that they have of the things of the world. There's a world system in Egypt. Remember that we stated a long time ago that when you see the word Egypt, you could, you could insert the word world there. That's what Egypt represents throughout the Old Testament. It was a bad place that people who loved the Lord really didn't want to go and shouldn't be associated with. It's a picture of this world. So when you look at Egypt in that sense, there's a false security placed in Egypt here. It's like if we make peace with Egypt, we don't need to make peace with God. As long as we're secure in what the world is, as long as we do things the world's way and we're rewarded with the things of the world, as long as this grand vizier is happy with us because they don't know that he's actually their brother, they're actually trying to make peace with the world. Brothers and sisters, you can't make peace with the world. It's not possible. We're not of this world. And so to that end, Jesus himself, speaking a parable, talking about this wealthy farmer, says there in Luke 12, verse 16, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no more room to store my crops? In other words, he was completely satisfied with the things that were going on in his life. Totally happy. And so he said, I will do this. I'll pull down my barns and I'll build greater. And there I will store all my crops and all my goods. In other words, his solution wasn't a biblical one that pleases God. His solution was, I'll just get richer. I'll get fatter. I'll get more things of the world and that's going to make me happy. And I will say to my soul, verse 19, soul... You have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease and eat and drink and be merry. This is that satisfaction, this false sense of security. Now bear in mind, Jesus is not talking about having a solid financial plan. He's not talking about planning for your latter days when you aren't going to be able to work like you're working right now. He's talking about having satisfaction in the things of this world and not having satisfaction in the things of the Lord. In other words, it's trusting in the things, the riches of this world and all it has to offer. Verse 20 of Luke chapter 12, but God said to him, fool. Fool. He says, rocka, dumbhead. Idiot. Moron. I know we don't like to use those terms, but that's the inference here. You are not thinking, son. That thing on top of your head, that's where your brain resides. You're supposed to use that. Fool. This night, your soul will be required of you. You see, here's the end. The end of the story for all of us is this night, we do not know when that night is. I don't know when my last breath is going to be taken, I haven't got a clue. One of the crazy things I've been dealing with for this whole last week and a day. It's like, I I had no idea that I would never talk to my sister again. None. 
I didn't know she was going home to be with Jesus. I thought there'd be plenty of time for another conversation. I could call her and see how she's doing next week. You don't know. And so Jesus says, your soul's going to be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. You see, the brothers in this story were trying to lay up treasure for themselves in this sense. They figured they could use what they already have to purchase their way out of this situation and make nice with the world they were trusting in the things of the world. The problem is, it wasn't a world problem. It was a heart problem. It was an internal problem, not an external problem. It had external consequences. It had external circumstances. But it was an internal problem. They were not walking in faith. Be careful. We need to beware of that false peace and joy. And beware of false repentance and false confession. And beware of false security in the things of this world. These lessons are, are fairly clear in this passage. Then comes this big reveal. You know, I don't know if you guys watch Fixer Upper, but you know the photos in front, the, the old picture of what the house looked like before it got renovated. And then they pull the two panels back, and there it is, the new house. Well, that's kind of what we have here in the story because they're finally going to realize what's going on here. Judah says to them before they leave, if you'd let Benjamin go, we would have been there and back home by this time. You know, they, they thought they could take the shortcut. But you can imagine Joseph's emotion as his eye singles out his brother. His literal brother by Rachel. And I don't know if Joseph was seated or standing. We're not told. Maybe he was on a throne. Maybe he was not. Maybe he was elevated on a platform. Maybe he was not, but it doesn't matter. He begins to ask some questions. He's like, is, is your father well? And these guys have to be getting the picture that their whole story has been completely unraveled before this prince of Egypt. That he knows who they are and he knows a bunch of things about their life because he seats them in their birth order. By now, Joseph is almost 40 years old. This story has been haunting this family for 20 plus years. And God's been kind of unveiling pieces of it. And in that sense, he's been unveiling himself to this family. And it's really a picture, if you will, of ultimately what's going to happen in the future to the Jewish people. Because here in this picture, we have the very early beginnings of the children of Israel. The, the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's through Jacob, Israel, that the 12 tribes will be founded. And yet they haven't seen their deliverer. 
They haven't seen their deliverance yet. They, they haven't, in that sense, noticed that they're, they're being set free. They're, they're still in bondage. And there, Zechariah 13, speaking of a day that is yet future for the children of Israel. One day he's going to say to them, and, and they will look at him, and they'll ask, what are these wounds on your hands? And Jesus is going to respond back, those are the wounds with which I was wounded for my friends. And here's, here's Joseph wanting to tell him the whole thing. It's like, man, I, I want to just reveal everything to you, but you're not ready to receive it. And that story there in, in Zechariah 13 is going to come to pass that the children of Israel will ultimately mourn the one whom they have pierced. And they're being, in that sense, kind of given a little bit of a preview of that day here in Genesis chapter 43. Don't miss when the Lord's revealing himself to you. Uh, And whether that's someone who's of Jewish ancestry, in other words, the literal children of Israel, or whether that's someone who's adopted into the family, those of us who are Gentile believers, the bottom line is the Lord wants to reveal himself. He's constantly working towards that end in each of our lives. But we have to be open to see. We have to reject the blindness that this world puts on us. And finally, we can see that there's inside info here. As this passage wraps up, you can clearly see that God himself is behind all of this. That that whether we're talking about today and the Jewish people having Messiah revealed to them, or then and the children of Israel realizing that God himself has spoken to this Egyptian prince, that he's got inside information, and you can see it, verse 32. And so they set him a place by himself and then by themselves. The Egyptians ate with themselves because the Egyptians didn't eat food with the Hebrews or it was an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright. How would anybody in Egypt know that? It's information from another place, amen? Amen. God's constantly speaking information from outside of space and time into our lives through his word principally today. And the youngest according to his youth and the men looked in astonishment at one another and he took the servings to them and from before them but Benjamin serving. So here's where it gets crazy. How would this Egyptian prince know that Benjamin the son who's the real brother to this prince, how would he know who that is? And without being told who it is, he serves him up five times as much food. He says, welcome home. I I want you to know who I am. And Joseph finally releases this information to him. You can almost see him, you know, when you go to a party, you know, the little name placards are on the table. You can imagine he's going through and 
there's Benjamin's space and there's five times as much food there. Benjamin sit there. God wants to do that with us. He wants to bless us. He wants to reveal himself to us. He wants us to know who we are in him. But we have to be honest with him. We have to release those things that we're hanging on to that keep us from God's best. And we have to invite him to do that work of restoration and reconciliation in our lives as we commit ourselves to him and say, Lord, I'm gonna walk in faith. I don't know what's gonna happen, but I know what I have to do and I'm gonna do it with all of my heart, my soul, my mind, and my strength. Then the Lord will pile five times on you. The Lord will bless you. The Lord will work in your life in a spectacular way. And so if we will let it, Famine can strengthen. Famine can fuel our faith. It, it can cause us to rise up to new occasions, new heights of glorious things that the Lord wants to do. And so I encourage you, let God do what God wants to do. Don't repeat stuff in your life. When God has spoken, listen. And when he tells you to do something, do it. And the sooner that you can make that full turnabout, the, the quicker it's going to be that you could be out of the famine. Because it's very likely that that famine was actually either caused by the Lord or allowed by the Lord to get your attention because he's trying to fuel your faith. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray together. I'm going to have some of the pastors up front and some of the lady prayer warriors to pray with you after service. Maybe you got some area that God's just trying to speak into your life. Let him do it. He's good. He loves us. Amen? He's not actually angry at us. He's trying to restore our relationship with him so that we can walk closer. And so let's let him do that. Father, we thank you. Lord, I thank you for being gracious. Lord, even in my own life, Lord, that you know what we can withstand. You do not break us when we're already broken. You never apply more pressure than is necessary. God, even in our times of difficulty, in our journeys through the land of famine, God, you're faithful even in the famine to feed us from your banqueting table. And we are so grateful for your gracious love to us. Lord, thank you for caring for us, receiving us, forgiving us, encouraging us. And Lord, I pray if there's anybody struggling tonight or in a time of famine in their own life, if there's something they need to do, something they need to let go of, some habit that needs to be forsaken, some mindset that's incompatible with your perfect plans for their life. Lord, would you release them to really be able to to just sit down with you at that table and just enjoy your goodness, Lord. Would you restore their soul, be the lifter of their head. Father, thanks for your kindness, your gentleness, and your mercy to us. Lord, we just give you our lives and pray that you'd help us, Lord, to surrender everything to you. In Jesus' name. Amen.